but we're going to be in Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We're going to pick up really in a very famous section of Scripture. A really very, very famous section of Scripture that uh, everybody should be uh, quite familiar with. And it's going to begin in verse 34. Uh, and we're going to go over really two commandments that, I mean, we've all, uh, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've, you've encountered uh, a discussion on these two commandments. Um, and I think in doing so, sometimes we, uh, we become maybe callous to them or we become familiar with them. And, and one of the dangers of that is that we, we fail to understand what Jesus is really talking about as he says these things. Uh, so uh, our goal is to understand, uh, first of all, what Jesus is saying as he's responding to a question. Right, why he's responding in this manner, and then what that, that means for us like today, and uh, particularly what that means for us in Christ. Because uh, what we'll see here is that the response that he gives is far too challenging for anybody to accomplish in their own uh, strength. But we'll take a look at it. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we do thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for teaching us by your word and through your spirit. Lord, we ask that your spirit would be amongst us, Lord, and that you would be the teacher. Lord, and that we would learn from you, we would learn of you, and we would be conformed to the image of your son. Lord, that uh, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word only, but we would doers as well. And so, Lord, we just ask you to have your way in this time and we just thank you for your goodness. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 22, we're picking up at verse 34. I'll read it, and then we'll, we'll discuss and we'll talk about it. So, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him, that's Jesus, a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, with all your mind, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is addressing a very specific question. And what we're getting at here in Matthew 22 is that Jesus is in the midst of really being tested. Right? This isn't an isolated question, and this isn't even really a genuine question. Jesus is being tested by the Pharisees and Sadducees concerning the things that they think they know. And as testing the Lord, which is something, by the way, that is, we're told not to do. You do not test, tempt the Lord your God. Jesus gave that specifically, that word specifically to Satan when he told him to throw himself off of the the Temple Mount and, and be like, because the angels will, will bear you up. And he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This is a very specific thing. And what, what we're talking about when we're talking about this idea of testing the Lord, right? Uh, these, these accusers, these, these testers, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're not interested in Jesus's actual response. And before we go, yeah, that's the, what the Pharisees do or whatever, the, there's a real sense in that that often we can approach the Lord in that way, right? Because what they're after isn't to see whether or not what it is that Jesus desires or what pleases him or what his thoughts really are. Their only concern is, is, is if Jesus agrees with what they already think. 
And look, we run the real risk when we approach the Lord of sometimes doing that, where we're not asking Him a question out of a concern for what He really thinks. We just want validation for how we think. And we just want to accept only what He says that aligns with what we've already brought to the table. And they've done this, they've attempted this, and they've attempted to try to trap him so that they could kind of be free of the, the authoritative claims that he makes in two ways. In the first way, back up at the beginning of the chapter, uh, the Pharisees questioned him about paying taxes to Caesar. Right? Uh, and essentially the question really boils down to, is it right to follow the you know, governing authorities or is it right to follow the Lord? And we kind of find ourselves in, in that kind of position all the time, asking that similar question. And we have the temptation within us to, to want to trap the Lord into a situation, be like, Lord, I want you to tell me what I want to hear about this. Right? But Jesus, he flips that and he does this on all three questions here that, that, are, that are leading up to this one. He flips the question on his head, revealing that the question itself is a misunderstanding of Scripture. Right? Because when they question, you know, basically, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Like, and lawful not in the sense of like Caesar's law, because obviously it's lawful if you're under Caesar to pay taxes. Under. He's talking about, is it lawful under God's standard to, to be paying taxes to Caesar, who by their estimate is an unrighteous person? And Jesus confronts them with, well, look, you, you misunderstand the whole idea of the authority that God has given and that he has placed you under in, in the government that you live under. He says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto the Lord that which is the Lord's. He's emphasizing the sense that God is in control. We get the same kind of discussion in Romans 14 when Paul tells us to submit to all governing authorities. It's not a question of whether you should. It's a question of whether you're going to as unto the Lord. And so Jesus is like, you're missing the point, right? Your question, it betrays that you already don't know what you're talking about. Uh, the Sadducees come, they try to trap him. The Sadducees, rather than the Pharisees, are more of, you would probably more call them the more uh, logical, uh, materialistic group because they don't believe in the resurrection. Of the two uh, sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And of course, then they ask the Lord a question about the resurrection. And their question isn't, again, for actual care about the resurrection. They already have in their mind that the resurrection is not a thing. They're seeking to trap Jesus in a contradiction or a confusion, right? Because they bring up a situation where a woman essentially has seven different husbands through, through the means of one of them dying and then the brother marries. The, and he's like, who, who will be this woman's husband in the resurrection? They're like, see, this is a ridiculous thing, the resurrection. And Jesus, again, he flips the question on his head and he says it outright. He says, you guys don't really know what you're talking about. He says, look, the relationship essentially that we have here and now, when you think of especially the marriage... That's not what it's like in the resurrection. You guys are trying to relate your experience here and now as if when God promises us life and when He promises us heaven and when He promises the resurrection and the return, that what He means is that it's a continuation of what we have right now. 
Right, you assume, well, he married here means married there. The things that I enjoy here, I want like there to be like football and basketball and something over it. Right? And Jesus looks at that and he says, I'm making something new. Paul goes so far as to say, I has not seen nor ear heard that which the Lord has in store. The questions of what it'll be like are kind of irrelevant, Jesus is saying, because you can't even begin to relate it to what you know. All that we can rest in really is what he reveals to us in his word, and and what he reveals is very little about, about what it's like, but he does reveal that he's with us. He's with us in totality, and that his glory shines upon us in such a way that the difference between here and there is such that there is no need for even the sun, right? That his glory fills the place, right? So Jesus, again, he does, he challenges the very basis and the fundamental part by which they understand, what they think they understand. And he does that here in the, in the third part. So uh, they, the Pharisees, they gather specifically a lawyer. And the word lawyer isn't just, it, just a reference to like legal terms in the sense of like, oh, you know, we might hire a lawyer. Now, it's also somebody who's well-versed and has an expertise in all of the traditions that were carried on from the Jewish interpretation of the law, right? So this is a person who not just knows the Torah, for instance, but this is a person who also knows all the rabbinical teachings and who would be able to expound upon the application of these things and the way that uh, the rabbis would have taught it and these things. And he, he would be an expert in this situation. So he too, he already, because if you actually look at Jesus' response here, Jesus does indeed reference two laws that are listed in the Torah. But when he does so, it's a surprising thing that he references these because without a doubt, this lawyer, he was coming in with this notion of what must I do? What singular action stands above the rest as the most significant commandment to follow of the Lord? And that's what the word great here means. It's first in rank, first in priority, having the preeminent spot. It's about, he's asking, which thing has the Lord said that I must essentially keep in order, in order to be righteous? What is that great thing? And Jesus' response is so simple and yet so very profound. Now, before we elaborate on his response, I'll summarize it as this. He just says, love God, love people, right? Love God, love people. And he does two things, really, in doing this, or I guess three, really, right? First of all, he takes what we would understand as a set of things to accomplish and to do, and he changes it into a a set of values, into a set of what you find valuable. And I think often we we struggle with this concept because even when we hear the term Christian principle and Christian value thrown around, we don't mean necessarily what Jesus is meaning here because we use that to say, well, it's Christian value to want to homeschool or something. It's a Christian value thing. It's a Christian principle thing. We take it and we reduce it just like the, the, and we reduce it to a series of actions, 
Right? We, we run that risk very often in our understanding, in our application. And here's the thing that we must understand when we're talking about the word of the Lord and what Jesus is emphasizing here for us. Uh, we don't want to take the applications of Scripture to your very specific uh, setting in life and treat them as the principles of the Lord. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? As the interpretation of Scripture. There is one interpretation. Second Peter makes it very clear on that. There's one interpretation, right? Uh, now, there are many ways that this that these principles and that this, this thing becomes applied into somebody's specific life. But we cannot confuse the, the applications of our understanding of, the, of what the Lord has said and treat them as the highest priority thing. Because they are not, because the highest priority thing, as Jesus is revealing, is not a list or set of actions, but a mindset, a value, and a desire. So we have to fight that temptation. But secondly, what he does here as well is he reveals something very important. We're going to skip what he says and jump to the end of what he says in verse 40. Look at here. He says, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. The word hang is very interesting. It's most often used in the New Testament referencing people hanging on a cross. Referencing people hanging on a cross. And when we think of so therefore, when we think of hanging, the word is to be suspended upon. So the thing that is hanging on it is not the foundational thing. The thing that's doing the hanging is the foundational thing. And in other words, what Jesus is revealing is, is that without loving God and without loving people, the entirety of the law and prophets crumble. The entirety of it falls down because they are supported and held up by love of God and love of people. Right? Uh, Again, we go to 1 Corinthians 13 and it opens up with a, very, with a very challenging way that it talks about love, right? It says, if I speak with the tongues of angels, but I have not love, I am a clanging brass and sounding cymbal, right? Guys, you could be as charitable, as moral, as devoted to being a nice guy as you want to be. And if it is devoid of what Jesus is talking about, loving God and loving people in the way that he's talking about it, you're just as unrighteous as you are as if you, you weren't doing that. Your righteousness cannot exist without these two things. You cannot stand before the Lord on those. Similarly, if you read Isaiah 1, Read Isaiah 1. Isaiah is giving a prophecy. Um, he's a prophet. So that's what he does. Right? Uh, and he's, he's uh, speaking to, to, to Judah. Right? The tribe, the nation of Judah. Dual tribe nation. Israel had split into two kingdoms at that point. Southern kingdom of Judah. He's speaking to them. And he's basically telling them all the wickedness that they have. And one of the things specifically he says, and I don't want to misquote it because it's very, very interesting. He says this, because uh, this is the, the one part emphasized in 1 Corinthians 13. We often see that and we think of the way that we love people. Um, but look here as well in the way that we love God, because what he's emphasizing is not just that if your actions that are charitable and moral are without love, that they're worthless, but also if you're 
religious activity and your piety to the Lord is without love. It's worthless, unrighteous, and pointless. So uh, Isaiah 1 just look to verse 12, or we'll start in verse 10, right? Uh, this is how he describes uh, Judah. He, you don't ever want to be described as Sodom and Gomorrah, but, you know, here we go. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's not speaking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's speaking to Judah, right? He's, and he says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? He says, Or I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred and the sacred meeting. And he continues on. You see, you could be involved in all manner of religious activity as a show of your piousness and of your closeness to the Lord, but devoid of this love that Jesus is speaking about, it's actually empty and disgusting to the Lord. And so we really want to understand what Christ is calling us to here because he is emphasizing to these people that it's not a set of commands. It's one principle that's inherently tied to another principle. And that these two things on them hang the entirety of the law and the prophets. And so the last thing to touch on before we uh, explore this is that he couples these two things together. Look with me in uh, the verse. He says in verse 38, this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. The word like is the word homo, from which we get like homo sapien or any kind of thing. It's that, that, that Greek word. It means It means to resemble, right? It means to have very close likeness. I mean, when we think about the classification of Homo sapien, right, that's a classification of people that we all fit under that classification. In other words, there's a very obvious, distinct, and close relationship. You don't look at a monkey, unless you're into evolution, and think, you know, we are the same. (laughs) You don't look at the two Despite some similarity, right, there's a deeper similarity. We technically all share kind of the same chemical formula makeup as like the dirt. There's carbon in there. There's, there's stuff in there. <laughs> and um, if you look at your body, if you had both under a microscope, the same kinds of elements are there. But there's something about us as people, right, that we are distinctly closer in relationship to each other than we are to the dirt. Some of us, right? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Jesus is saying here, right, that these two things are so intricately linked, so intricately linked. And I want to, before we examine this uh, explicitly, let me just turn, turn with me to Romans 1 real quick, because Understanding the closeness of these two things is basically, we're going to kind of do, have, have you guys ever sat through a math class that you hated? <laughs> yeah, everybody, yeah. <laughs> and they do something that's called a proof by negation, 
So you take, you're not trying to prove the clause, you take the negative, you prove that that's false and therefore the other thing is true. It's a logical thing. Take that home, talk to your kids or kids talk to your parents about it. Anyway. <laughs> um, anyway. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to see a progression in sin, a progression in sin that reveals the inherent closeness of these two rela- of the of these two relationships here of your love for God and your love for people, right? So by seeing the the breakdown of that, we're going to understand the closeness of the two. Um, so uh, beginning in verse uh, eighteen of Romans one, Romans one verse eighteen. Paul lays out kind of an indictment that encompasses the entirety of humanity. And we can see a series of, of, of things that happen here. Uh, we see um, in verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then he's going to give a, a reason for why it's being revealed, why this wrath against unrighteousness is going to basically reveal to us the root of unrighteousness. And, and then we're going to see a progression into how that root translates into practical life. How the starting point translates into how you treat each other and how you treat yourself. Uh, because he says here, just skip down with me. I'm not going to read the entirety of this. I just want to highlight por- portions for you. So he's laying out this indictment. And, and in verse 21, he begins with the first real reason here. He says, although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God. That's the relationship. That's the relation. That's the that's the loving God, right? Now, when we think of the word glorify, we're talking about assigning value. The word glory itself is a weighted word in the sense that it references kind of a weight, a mass, kind of a, a worth in that sense, right? And to, and to glorify him is to assign him personally on your own end that appropriate worth. God has an inherent glory and value because of who he is. And the first indictment that he's laying here is is that, look, you fail to recognize and acknowledge and live according to the inherent value and worth that he has. But that has dramatic consequences. Failing to recognize God in the entirety of who he is has extremely dramatic consequences to how you understand not just God, but the world around you and the people around you and yourself. Because look at what happens in the progression. As you have, as they reject God by not glorifying him, God, it says, gives them up. So this is, nor were the thankful would be, okay, verse 21, although they knew God, not glorify as God, nor were thankful, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And in verse 23, here, the, the now they begin to make up their own God. And they change the glory, his true value, into something else. To something that they more easily comprehended. Themselves, animals, the sun, the universe, whatever. Something that essentially they could exercise control over. Look, the, in, in failing to recognize and failing at this, this loving God and understanding him on that level and relating to him on that level, the first thing, right, was that that relationship was flipped in the sense that no longer was God God, 
now you made something else God. And in making something else God, it says, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. The inherent flaw in not relating to the Lord properly is that you fail to understand yourself and everyone around you. Why? Because if you don't understand the value of the Lord, you can't understand the value of people who are also made in the image of the Lord. What value will you assign to another human being if you don't value the Lord? The greatest value that you could possibly assign to them is the selfish thing of seeing how they can please your own appetites. And that's exactly what happens as you continue through, you read it. What are they doing to each other? They are simply looking at each other for the pleasure of their own. He emphasizes sexual appetites, but then he goes into a further list and emphasizes the wickedness and the, and the hostility and all of these things. And guys, uh, Jesus ties these two things together. Paul shows us how these two things are linked. Loving God and loving people are intertwined. Uh, you cannot claim to love. We went through this in First John, if you've been here for, the, for any of the morning. You cannot claim to love God and also hate people. But you can't also, on the flip side, claim to love people properly if you hate God. The two are on the same coin, two sides of the same coin, right? So let's go back and let's examine what Jesus is calling us to in loving God and in loving people. So back to Matthew 22. So I like to break down some of the words here because he, he, so he, he references, this is from Deuteronomy 6. We read this in our scripture reading. It's from Deuteronomy 6. It's, it's, it's a command that the Lord gives right at the onset there, kind of like, again, not really as a command, but more as like an overarching principle that then is followed by a series of commands. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And it's interesting, right, that he's speaking of, he's speaking of three separate, he uses three separate words. He could just say with, with everything in you or something, right? You're like, well, why did he specify three things, right? Well, so the three words themselves, the heart, this is, this is always like difficult to say. When you hear commentaries or teachings or people saying things and, and discussions of the heart and the soul. And man, it's, it's hard to sometimes like, we like to delineate some things and be like, this is definitively the heart part. This is definitively the soul. I will just say this. There, there, is, a, there is some overlap that we're going to see here in terms of how we can try to understand what Jesus is getting at. But <clears throat> the heart, um, the derivative word is of the center of your being. And so most uh, understanding of it and most of its use associates it with a kind of a vigorousness from, from your central place and, and therefore a, a passion. So it's that deep part of you. And that's it, that deep central part of who you are. Now, soul uh, is often uh, used to describe in various references. Um, it's the seat of your desire, the seat of your emotion, the seat of your thoughts. 
And, and so you might say that this is essentially like the, the, the personality with which you hold that you in, in your essence. So there's the vigor and the intensity from the deepness of where you are, and then there's just the, the entirety of the person of kind of your desires, your likes, your dislikes, your emotions, your thoughts, and those kinds of things. And then finally, when he says with your mind, that is solely uh, described as the place of understanding and reason. And so we can see what he's calling us to then. He's calling us that this love for God isn't, isn't just an intellectual pursuit. It isn't just an emotional pursuit. And it isn't just something that you are overwhelmed by passion with. But rather it is something that engages all of those things. Not like in a continual sense. We, I think anyone who's been married for any length of time, that there are periods where you're engaging your passions, you're engaging uh, on an emotional level, uh, and you're engaging on an intellectual. There's, there's, there's a, a mix of these things going on back and forth over and over again. It's a call to, to a deep, deep uh, relationship, right? One, one where it's, it's, it's engaging your mind, it does engage your emotions. It does inspire your passion and drive your desire. And, and I think, you know, we need to be careful not to, one, minimize what Jesus is saying there. That sometimes, like, I'm, I'm more of like a guy who doesn't engage my emotions too much. You can ask my wife about that, right? And so, like, I tend towards, like, well, uh, thinking of it, like, in an intellectual way. But... But there is a real sense in that following the Lord should engage you in an emotional sense. It's, it's emotionally stirring to think about the love of the Lord. And if it's not, right, then, then you're really kind of missing out on something. It changes your desire, right? It changes what you're passionate about when you're following the Lord. When we talk about uh, one of the pers- things that, that is common in American culture, right, is, is this desire to pursue that which you are passionate about for like a career. But look, we never see that in the Lord because the thing that we should be passionate about, what he's calling us here, the passion we have is the Lord. And that doesn't mean that like you go and you sit in a monastery and you just like do your thing because we got the flip side of the coin, right? Where you're loving people, right? But it doesn't mean that you're just like, like off reading your Bible for 24-7 and not engaging or anything. But what it means is, is that you're not looking for something external to make you passionate or whatever. You're bringing your passion for the Lord into what you're doing. It's very different, right? And, and so just as a quick tidbit, this is like off on the side here, right? You don't need to pursue some career or thing or activity for which you're like, this activity is something that I'm passionate about. No, bring your passion for the Lord into the activities that he puts before you to do. So he's calling us to be engaged on, on, a, on a, greater, a greater level than honestly we can possibly comprehend. When we look at this, what we really have to be left with is like, I have never loved anything like this. Anything. I have never been that in, invested in, devoted to, engaged in anything. And I'm like a naturally lazy person, so it's like even like double so for me, right? Like it's like, I give like 75%, I'm like, that's it. That's like max, even though I know it's like 75%. My wife is laughing because she knows, right? <laughs> But that's the first and great commandment. And if, here's the thing. If, if we fail at that, 
you will always fail at the second. Because the second is entirely dependent on how you're relating to the Lord. So let's clarify the second as well. Jesus uses a term here. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He takes this from Leviticus 19. We didn't read that in our scripture reading. But if you read Leviticus 19, there are two instances there where we get the term, love your neighbor as yourself. Let me um, state these specific verses for you. This is why it's not good to look away from your notes and then look back, right? You look back and you're like, duh, that's not what I was looking at like five seconds ago. Um, You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to turn to Leviticus 19. It's easier to do that than to sit here searching. So in Leviticus 19, what's interesting and what's noted is is that when these instructions are being given, because Leviticus is a book essentially of, of both the ceremonial laws and some, some, some things like that, and kind of worshipful laws as it's the, the things for the priests to, to be administering. And um, he's giving a command to the people or spoke, speaking to Moses to say to them something. And he opens up chapter 19 like this. Speaks to all the congregation of the children of Israel. Say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then he's going to give a series of commands. At the end of each command, he says, I am the Lord. He says, I am the Lord your God. So like, for instance, verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap. And then, da, 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 I am the Lord your God. Right? He, he, the principle is this to begin with. Right? God is wholly unique and set apart. Therefore, your life should reflect that holiness and uniqueness. And how that practically looks is this way, right? All of these things that are listed are aspects of your relationship to God is one where you understand, accept, and walk in an understanding of His holiness, and therefore you are driven to a place of also living holy. And now the holiness, the holiness exemplifies itself in these specific ways. And the two ways, when Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which we'll find in this passage, uh, the two ways that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, very interesting. Very interesting. Look at right here. Verse 17 first is the first mention of this here. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself secondly check out the next time that he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself verse 33 if a stranger dwells with you in the land you shall not mistreat him The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. The two specific contexts under which we find probably the greatest difficulty in following this command are when we are called to forgive and not take vengeance, and when we are called to deal with those who are strange to us, who are outsiders to us, right? Look, loving your neighbor as yourself absolutely demands the forgiveness of the Lord. It is impossible to be somebody who loves your neighbor as yourself 
and to hold a grudge and to hold anything against somebody. Why? Well, in Christ, we get a greater revelation because in Christ, all people can be forgiven. We get the secondary part uh, uh, at the beginning there, right? The, in Leviticus, he says, why? Because vengeance is the Lord's. It's his to deal with, not yours. And this is, this is essentially why loving your neighbor is absolutely dependent on how you love the Lord. Because if you don't believe, trust, and understand that he will make things right, you will feel obligated to make things right yourself. And guess what? You're not very good at that. And what, what, it'll, what it'll end up being is you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're not following the Lord. And you're just taking matters into your own hands and ruining it along the way. Secondly, though, the stranger in the land. Guys, this is a call because you know, what he says there after he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, says, because you were also strangers. Guys, I think sometimes we, we live our Christian life and we, we go through it for a certain amount of time. And here's the thing, we get surprised by the activity of unbelievers. Or like, like we look at something that an unbeliever does and we go, that's the wildest thing. Who would do that? And, and rather than maybe just laughing that off and then treating them nicely, we mistreat them because we're so shocked by the evil or the wickedness or the whatever. We're so surprised that we're like, oh, I can't associate with that. I can't get in there. I can't deal with that. But we are all or were all there. We were all so strange. Guess what? Nobody, nobody was born with an ability to be inherently righteous before the Lord. Nobody, none of us came out that way that we could look at another person and go, I was not a stranger in this land. God, it says in Colossians that Jesus took us from one kingdom and he translated us into the kingdom of his son. That means we were not there. We were strangers. And here we are now. And man, how crazy is it that we would look at God bringing other strangers into the land and be like, man, you guys are unacceptable. When we too were those strangers. And here's, here's the, the issue with both of those commands particularly in simultaneous understanding of their importance. Guys, we fail at this basically on like a minute-to-minute basis. Like, <laughs> right, we're so bad at this. But here's the thing. Jesus, he's, what he's doing here is he is not, and, and, and we have to understand this, he, what he's doing consistently when he's teaching. Uh, people love the Sermon on the Mount. They go, you know, Jesus is telling us these great principles to live by. He's not telling you principles to live by. He's just demonstrating how impossible it is to keep the law of the Lord. Jesus isn't telling us this so that we can go, I want to live by these principles in my own strength. It's not enough to agree with the Lord that these are really good things to do. You still won't do them. Romans 2, which follows Romans, continues in that vein and is like, you guys who teach the law, you're just the same. 
as the people who don't. Why? Because the things that you, you don't do the things that you teach. You, you can agree with him, want to do it, and then try to achieve it yourself and be like, man, I still don't really love the Lord or people. Right? But here's the thing. In Christ, he bridges this gap and he puts in the filler between the two for us because he invites us to himself and draws us into his love. And we saw it again in 1 John. It is, why do we love God with the love with which he's called us to? We love him because he's first loved us. We love him because he's first loved us. Guys, and then we love others because of our security in the love with which we have from Him. And so here's, here's what we're going to wrap up talking about, is we have no power to keep this law that Jesus has called us to. Only in Him and in receiving His love can these two things be a reality in our life. It is his love that drives us to love him in response. And it is his love that drives us to sacrifice in love for those around us. And so, if we are finding ourselves struggling, if we are finding ourselves like, I don't have that passion, that devotion, I'm not mentally engaged, I'm not emotionally engaged with the Lord, then you got to return to the cross. Because that's where he's demonstrated the depth of his love. I love in, I didn't write it down, but it's, I think it's Psalm 42. I'm probably wrong. But <laughs> one of the Psalms where David, he's in a lot of distress. And he says, his deep cries out to God's deep. He says, deep cries out to deep. I love that phrase. Because all of the deepness of who we are God has extended all of the deepness of who He is and revealed that to us. Ephesians 3 goes so far as to say, Paul is making a prayer for the Ephesians and he says that he's praying that they would comprehend that which is incomprehensible, the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God, and that in doing so they would be filled with all the fullness of God. What a crazy statement. God who holds the universe in His hands, then the deep places of Him, the unsearchable places, the incomprehensible places of Him to fill you up and to be a part of who you are. That you would be a partaker of His nature. Guys, we, we love Him because He first loved us. He has revealed that to you. Rest in that. Find your security in that. Uh, if on the flip side, right? Uh, loving people, guys, what Jesus accomplished is the only thing that will ever free you to this kind of love. It's the only thing. Because Jesus is the only one who's conquered death. Do you understand? If somebody else conquered death, maybe they could maybe make the same kind of offer to you. But only Jesus conquered death. And you know why that's so freeing? Because now you're free to die for others. Do you understand? Uh, 
being free from death doesn't exclude God from calling you to physically die for the sake of somebody. It's, it's actually the very tool that frees you to be like, Lord, I will follow you to the depths of wherever, even death, because I know that not even that separates me from your love. But look, if you don't have that assurance, if you don't know God loves you that much, then when somebody is challenging you, when somebody's threatening you, when somebody's coming against you, you will hit a wall. You will hit a stopping point where you say, I can't go any further because I want to preserve myself, my life, what I have, what I've built, what I want. It's only in the security of God's love for us in Christ that we are free to love at all. You know, <clears throat> go back with me to Deuteronomy six, and we'll close this way because I want—I just one specific application. Um, being a new parent, these things are always on my mind these days. Is like, how does how does this translate to like what my kid sees? Anybody who's a parent knows, right? <laughs> you think more about your kids than they ever think about you. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and but. Uh, in Deuteronomy 6, where we read, as you saw, it talks about the, the degree to which this should be spoken about in the household. And I want to encourage you, uh, I want to uh, emphasize this, as we seek to raise our children, for those of you who don't have children, as you just seek to exist with your coworkers or with your friends or in those activities, right? And we're living out the following of this command and we're living out how to emphasize this, right? The, the emphasis one is not just a matter of we speak about it. It's not a matter of I just had a conversation with my kid or I had a conversation with my friend and that was enough and that, that was that. The level of engagement here is, is that it is a constant part of your life, not just in your speaking, but in your doing. And I want to encourage you guys, what they need to see is not, is not, perfect commandment following what they need to see is perfected faith in the lord that includes reaching for his grace in times of need and mercy that includes emphasizing that you don't have the strength in yourself that includes asking for forgiveness openly and not trying to hide your own sin, right? All of these things are a part of this walking out of the love of God. And our kids need to see that. They don't just need to read about it. And they don't just need to hear some nice things or to be like, well, being a Christian is, you know, you don't smoke, drink. Look, I'm not saying don't emphasize or don't teach some of these, these moral things. What I'm saying is, is that if that's all you're emphasizing and teaching, you're not showing them what it means to love God and to love people. We have to, for our children, learn from the Lord. As we sit in an understanding of His love, we have to learn what that looks like to show our children how much He loves us and therefore how much we love in return. Let's go ahead and pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We do thank you for your love. We do thank you that 
It's your love that gives us all of the power, Lord, by your Spirit who pours out your love into us, Lord, it gives us all of the power to love you in return, Lord, and, to, and to, to walk in the power of your resurrection life and to love the world as you have called us to. So Lord, we do ask that you would just go before us and fill us with your spirit, Lord. Remind us of your love and empower us to, to love you and to love those around us uh, to the degree that you call us to, Lord. We thank you for loving us in Christ Jesus and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.